Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Russian-controlled regions in eastern Ukraine announce plans to hold referendums later this week. The call for votes on formally joining Russia, which critics call a sham, comes after Ukrainian forces pushed Russian troops out of the Northeast, and there are reports today that Ukraine is making progress in the East. Liberating troops have been greeted by relieved residents, but they've also uncovered mass graves. The good and bad news from Ukraine and where things go from here, next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ukrainian forces are now making progress in the east, building on last week's sharp counteroffensives in the northeast that routed Russian troops. But Ukrainian forces liberating those areas have discovered more than hastily abandoned Russian outposts. They've found further signs of war crimes. Outside the town of Izium, a mass grave of 400 bodies, primarily civilians, some bearing evidence of torture. As winter approaches, Ukraine is eager to make more decisive gains in the brutal war that's lasted seven months now. Joining me from Ukraine is Jeffrey Gettleman, a global international correspondent with The New York Times. He's been on the ground in Ukraine since the war began. Jeffrey, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Tell us where you are now. So I am in the city of Mykolaiv, which is in southern Ukraine, and it's right on the edge of this Pretty ambitious and very bloody counteroffensive, where the Ukrainian military is trying to reclaim ground that the Russians seized in the early days of the war. And it's like a really ugly, grueling, difficult, and slow battle to take kilometer after kilometer of wide open fields that are um, guarded by artillery and airstrikes and lots of fortifications and trenches. And the Ukrainians are throwing thousands of men into this battle, trying to make progress to take back territory that was captured. But it's, it's really difficult because the Russians have a lot of ammunition, a lot of troops. They've been dug into the, this area for months, which means they've, they've dug trenches with bulldozers and put troops in there with guns and, and um, artillery and mortars. Um, they have tanks and armored personnel carriers. They have aircraft that fly in from, from Russia or other occupied areas. And so 
in the last few days, I've been in this this part of, of Ukraine, and there's this this hope and this you know drive that you feel all across this country. The whole country is united in this mm. war effort, unlike just about any other place you know in in recent times. But they're fighting this this more powerful and much larger enemy, and it's just um, it's a, it's it's a very hard battle. Yes. And we're just seeing a lot a lot of people get killed. And just this kind of question of like, how long is this going to go on? You know, what, what, what's, what's the, what's the end goal and how will this all end? Yes. You're laying out a lot of the questions very much on people's I'm minds. Sorry. No, no, exactly. <laughs> as I, I want you to do the Ukrainian forces, they've had this success in the Northeast, but you're, what you're describing in terms of what you're seeing in the Southern region and also what we are hearing reported from battles in the eastern region is that this will be a harder fight than what happened in the northeast because of some of the details you just laid out. So, Mina, this this is how I see it, and I'm just like one of many people who've been covering this place. So, so for you know, I'm not the last word on Ukraine by any stretch. But there's there's basically three theaters of the war right now. There's the northeast where the Ukrainians made a lot of progress in the last couple of weeks. That's what we heard about. They were taking town after town. Russian yes. forces collapses, collapsed. They retreated. Okay, there was a lot of enthusiasm that really was a, reinvigorated uh, the world's interest in Ukraine. That's one theater. Then you have the Far East on the Russian border, this area called the Donbass, which is where this war has been going on for eight years because the Russians and the Ukrainians have been fighting over this territory since 2014. Right. That's a whole other battle. And then you have the South, where the Russians took a lot of territory in the first couple days of the war, because Russia occupies the Crimean Peninsula, this part of Ukraine that used to be part of Russia, then became part of Ukraine, and the Russians always felt very close to it. And they annexed that in 2014. So it's been this simmering problem. And then when this war started in February, they sent forces out from the uh, Crimea Peninsula into southern Ukraine and took lots of territory. So now the Ukrainians are very eager to sort of reclaim parts of their country from the Russian forces. And they want to do it now because the, the worry is that over the winter, it's going to be really hard, both militarily to take ground when it's cold and ground's wet or frozen, uh, and then politically – Europe, which has been a big supporter of Ukraine, is going to face a really dire energy crisis this winter. Fuel prices are going to go up. It's likely going to be really difficult in a lot of European countries. They're going to have to cut down on consumption of energy, which means like colder homes, maybe less electricity, factories working less, a real economic hit. And so the Ukrainians, the reason why we're seeing all this news right now about all these offensives and, and this energy to retake territory is the Ukrainians want to show the world that they're not a losing cause. They are a winning side. And they want to show the world before things get really bad in the winter that they are moving in the right direction and we should support them now and they can win. And as of today, at least, the reports are that they are, it's grueling, but they are making progress. In reaction, we're hearing about these referendums that have been called in the Donbass region. 
in Donetsk and Luhansk and also some other regions are now calling for them. But those first two regions are calling for them later this week. What do you make of those votes to officially join Russia by these Russian allied or or basically installed officials in the region? So there's like a really complicated long history, and I don't want to bore anybody listening, you know, about all the all the background. But but to to, to boil it down, these parts of of Ukraine, and this has happened in other countries that were former Soviet republics. This is all kind of fallout from the collapse of the Soviet Empire. These parts of Ukraine always had an uneasy identity. How Russian were they? How Ukrainian were they? Did people identify more with the Soviet Union or more with this new country, Ukraine, that declared independence in 1991? And so there's been a lot of question marks over these areas for years. And in 2014, a war broke out in two parts of Ukraine, in the Donbass in the east and in Crimea, this peninsula that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Crimea had one of these referendums. And the people supposedly voted by a percentage of 97% to join Russia. Of course, nobody knows that that was any reflection of how the average person felt. But they did it, and Russia claimed that part of, of Ukraine. In the Donbass, they're now talking about doing the same thing, which would redraw the map of Europe. It would cut into what is now Ukraine and attach it to Russia. And Russia wants to do the same for some of these other parts of southern Ukraine, where I am right now. They want to claim that as part of Russia. And a lot of people just think this is... A horrible precedent to let a more powerful country just redraw the borders of a, of a weaker neighbor. And that's why the world is like really mobilized to stop Russia. So yeah. whether these referendums like reflect anything, you know, is, is a whole quite is another question. But the, the impact could be changing the borders of Ukraine, shrinking it down, making it a, sm- a smaller country. And I think there's a lot of concern about that. We're talking with the New York Times' Jeffrey Gettleman. Let me bring someone else into the conversation. Franklin Foer, a staff writer with The Atlantic, whose latest piece on Ukraine profiles a Ukrainian journalist. Franklin Foer, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure. You have a long history of, of being fascinated by Ukraine. Your grandmother was from there, and there was a time even that you believed what your grandmother and also what Putin had been saying about Ukraine. So I want to ask you for your insights into this region and the unique position it has, as Jeffrey Gettleman has described. First of all, if you want to add any more to this, I guess uneasy, I think was the word that Jeffrey Gettleman used, relationship with Russia in those areas, and how not just the history, but propaganda plays a role in that. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you have these, um, I mean, the thing that people forget is that as Jeffrey noted, war has been taking place in these territories since 2014. Um, even before that, the country of Ukraine had its share of ethnic divisions. And one of the, I think, the miracles of uh, the last couple of years of Ukrainian politics is the way in which a genuine Ukrainian identity has started to take hold that transcends some of the old divisions that separated the country um, linguistically and uh, geographically. And so one of the ways in which Russia has historically tried to exert influence in Ukraine has been to subsidize political parties um, that have exploited those those differences. And so um, in a way, what they're reverting to is an old tactic that's part of an old narrative. And I think that uh, Jeff is right that 
if they are allowed to prevail and to annex this piece of Ukraine, uh, um, they're, they're creating new facts on the ground and their implications, um, their implications for Ukraine. And so um, you hear a lot of, uh, you hear the Kremlin posturing that if um, they capture this territory and the Ukrainians then attempt in any way, shape or form to take it back or to launch, um, uh, launch an offensive in that territory, then it would spark a whole different realm of retaliatory possibilities. So I do think that this is a this is a tactic that is both uh, for show, but that also has some pretty uh, significant real world consequences. Yeah. So the U.S., Ukraine, and the U.S. have been clear that they would see that as illegal and not recognize it, and also. It's being regarded by some as really a sign of desperation that the Russians are showing. What do you think, Frank? Yeah, I mean, look, the I think that Russia has now suffered a series of pretty humiliating defeats in the scheme of this war. Of this war, you had the defeat in the Battle of of Kiev, and then you have um, this. Uh, I mean, it's a tentative victory, but a, what seems like a pretty significant victory in the the northeast part of the country. And so I think uh, Putin Putin had this plan initially that would have had him celebrating uh, the conquest of Ukraine last May, and that didn't come to pass. And now um, I think that he's looking for he's looking for easy wins. And I think that this referendum would provide him at least with some sort of counter narrative point that he'd be able to tout in order to sure himself up domestically and um, to give some shape to the war so that it doesn't seem like it's a completely hopeless, aimless, uh, wasteful expedition, which it, it in fact is. We're talking yeah, can with... I just add? Yeah, Jeff, quickly, we're coming no, up on a no. break. Yeah. Oh, just real fast. The idea is really sinister, which is if Russia claims these parts of Ukraine as part of Russia, and then Ukraine starts fighting in these areas, Russia can say, they are attacking us, Russia, and therefore we have to escalate our response. Yes. This is no longer about Ukraine. It's about Russia. We'll have more with Jeff Gettleman and Frank Foer after the break. And we want to hear from you listeners, your questions about the war in Ukraine. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow on our show, Harvard professor Drew Giltbin Faust recently discovered that the majority of her students could not read cursive. To them, it was like a foreign language, which got us thinking, 
Is handwriting really relevant anymore? Send us your thoughts or a picture of your handwriting, if you'd like, to forum at kqed.org. Today, we're talking about Ukraine with Franklin Fora, a staff writer with The Atlantic, and also with Jeffrey Gettleman, global international correspondent with The New York Times. Frank Fora has covered Ukraine for a long time. Jeffrey Gettleman has been there on the ground since the war began. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about the war on Ukraine. But we also want to hear if your support for Ukraine has changed at all in the last seven months, waxed or waned, why or why not, and when. How would you like to see the U.S. respond to this conflict? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And this listener tweets, What's the U.S. exit strategy in Ukraine? What's the end game? And what happens if Russia escalates to U.S. shock and awe warfare and destroys Ukraine's energy infrastructure like the U.S. did to Iraq? How will Ukraine fight a war without electricity? I guess while we're thinking about what the U.S.'s exit strategy is, I'm, I, we need to talk about what Putin's next move is. I feel like that's what you were saying, Jeff Gettleman, just before the break, is what we're seeing with this whole referendum, this um, pretense to be able to say you are attacking Russia now and we can go all out. Uh, Do you think that that is his next move or just a small piece of something, something bigger? Mina, it's really interesting. I've been covering this for months and talking to lots of people, and nobody can decipher what Putin's next move is going to be uh, or what the ultimate goal uh, of invading Ukraine really is. Um, That's what's interesting. The Ukrainians have a very clear goal to drive the Russians out and to reclaim their territory. Okay? Like, it's 100% clear everybody in this country is on board. Pretty much. Russia, it's, it's like, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to decapitate the leadership of Ukraine, which they said in the beginning of the invasion? We're going to, you know, there's a Nazi-led government and we're going to get rid of them, even though the president is Jewish and there's no, you know, Nazi connections for him. Um, are they trying to, to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO? Are they trying to reclaim parts of the Soviet empire? Are they trying to restore this grandeur to what the soviet union and russia used to be we really don't know but right now it's a very hard slog on the ground it's a conventional war there will be negotiations and diplomacy at some point most likely to bring this conflict to an end but right now both sides are really going at it like a hundred percent to just drive each other back they have these front lines that run for hundreds of miles thousands of troops dug in firing artillery shells mortar rounds um you know dropping bombs from airplanes all kinds of conventional warfare just to gain a few kilometers of of open fields that's what's happening today where i am i saw today i've seen it for the last couple weeks and it's really sad because they fire these, you know, enormously powerful rounds of artillery or mortars or other, you know, ammunitions, and they go sailing for miles and then explode in some village or a field and kill civilians or destroy a house 
or knock down a building and, and both sides are doing it. And it just really brings the futility of conflict into focus. It's like really depressing to watch it unfold in front of your eyes. Yeah, I imagine so. And, and Frank, I know when you traveled there earlier, the destruction is so extensive. Uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but I but I do wonder what role that would play in any in any kind of negotiation to end this. I think it'll make it very hard for Ukraine to get to the point psychologically where they could commit to a negotiated settlement because. The reality of the war is that when the Russians occupy Ukrainian territory, they do so um, with using terror um, as, as a primary tactic to uh, win the clients of the conquered people. Um, they really are bent on eliminating any sense of Ukrainian identity. So when they go into towns, they they, they will round up Ukrainian history teachers. There's uh, evidence of them burning Ukrainian books. And we know that in every place that they occupy, the, the local police station or some other building becomes a torture chamber that they use um, in order to go after people that they've deemed to be um, avatars of Ukrainian identity or somehow um, uh, enemies to their idea of Russification. And so I think if you're the Ukrainians, it becomes it becomes really difficult to imagine surrendering large swaths of territory or any swath of territory to the Russians knowing what they'll do. But that also creates another problem, which is that Ukrainians know that Putin, for all of the inchoate nature of his war plan. We don't know, we don't really know what his end game is, but we do know that he's not giving up. And so they're stuck in this situation where um, they're fighting a war for national survival against an implacable enemy, knowing that any concession to that implacable enemy is essentially intolerable, which means that it's the, the battle that that Jeffrey has explained um, so so brilliantly in his reporting and so vividly here um, is something that will just continue into the future. I think the question um, that clearly is on Putin's minds, it's on the minds of it's, it's just how how long will um, the NATO allies in the United States be willing to support this proxy war with the vigor that they have and. I think President Biden has always seen that there's a moment in the future where the public support for this war would start to diminish. It's it's almost a miracle that it hasn't happened to date. I think that um, that uh, the fact that uh, Mitch McConnell um, hasn't really made an issue of the war and has kind of silently provided his uh, Republican assent to the war means that um, there hasn't really been any sort of domestic friction to our lend-lease program with the Ukrainians. But let's say the Republicans take over the House or the, the Senate, and um, it's not just a question of, of uh, delivering a couple supplemental votes to Democratic majorities and that Republicans are going to have to step up to uh, continue financing the war. I, I don't know if that that point the consensus persist, or as Jeffrey pointed out, once Europe starts to freeze during the winter, that could pose um, a serious threat to this consensus. So yes. I think the Ukrainians are right to move quickly now. 
Well, Lady Tweets, I would pay $20 for a gallon of gas that I don't use Putin's oil, but I have a hybrid and I work from home and just stay around town. Saving Ukraine from falling under Putin's fascism is the number one priority in my mind, though. But if it starts making energy in the home and food not affordable, it will be harder. It's not it's the U.S.'s fault for not becoming more independent earlier. That's not Biden's complete responsibility. It's Congress, Republican senators and corporate greed. Let me go to a caller Irina in Napa. Hi, Irina. Hello. Um, yes, I want to talk about my family that came from Ukraine. Uh, I think I will be third generation. I grew up in Mexico because my grandparents escaped Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution, as far as I know. And my grandfather was born in Kiev. My grandmother was born in Odessa. Uh, they escaped on a train out of uh, at that time, and they uh, wanted to get into the United States, and they couldn't because of the golden policy. They didn't allow accountants and nurses, and so they went to live in Mexico. I was born in Mexico. Uh, now, I don't know much of the story of Ukraine until what happened, because my grandparents were silent. My grandfather would cry, and my grandmother would get angry, and they couldn't tell us the story. I found out through you guys when you started talking about Ukraine. Hmm. So uh, I don't have a question right now, but my heart bleeds for these people. And with time, I'm getting so worn out. I, I don't care anymore because I don't even know what is going on. Yeah. But I wish that Ukraine would survive this because otherwise the world altogether. Well, Irina, I hear how your heart is bleeding. And, and Frank, I don't know if you just want to respond, given your own personal connections to Ukraine as well, to what Irina is expressing here. You know, I think one of the beautiful stories of this war is the way in which Putin was basically counting on uh, European and American publics to be indifferent to the plight of Ukraine. Um, and it's just kind of it is an amazing and surprising fact, given um uh, given given nationalism in the in the in Europe and in uh, America, that this sense of kind of universal solidarity that the publics have felt with Ukraine has persisted in the face of the fact that, as the tweet noted, um, Americans and Europeans are actually economically sacrificing for the sake of this war. Everybody is paying more. Inflation is part of the is one of the consequences of this war. And so it's, um, I think I'm surprised at um, how publics have been willing to um, show solidarity against their own self-interest in this instance. Jeff Kettleman, what, the U.S. has been clear that they wouldn't recognize the referendum vote or those territories, for example. Uh, they have also, though, expressed concern about about Putin using nuclear or biological weapons, though at the same time they have continued not to provide Ukraine with weapons that would allow them to attack inside Russia. Could you give us your assessment of where the U.S. is 
the U.S. government is on this war. Mina, 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 before I do that, I would just love to comment to what this caller, uh, Arena, brought up. Um, So many of uh, of us have have ancestry in in Ukraine. So I know Franklin's family from from his his family's story, you know, has grandparents from Ukraine. My uh, father's side is from Odessa. Um, So many, uh, especially Jewish, Jewish Americans trace their ancestry to this part of eastern Poland, western Ukraine. And and why, like anybody should care, you know, they don't need to care about my ancestors or any particular other persons. But this part of the world has been so soaked in conflict and bloodshed for for generations. And I didn't appreciate that until I came here as a journalist this spring, that the Ukrainians have been fighting the Russians for, for a long time. They fought them in World War II. They were trying to get their ends. And it's true what Putin has been saying about, you know, there was this history of Ukrainians and the Nazis. Part of that is true. <clears throat> there was an independence movement by the Ukrainians during World War II that was so desperate to fight off the Soviets that part of that independence movement teamed up with Nazi Germany. They slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews. Ukrainians did in collaboration with with the Nazis in Ukraine. There was some horrible stuff that happened in this part of the world. And so so the woman who called, which is fascinating, like she's in Mexico and 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 her and she said her ancestors fled the Bolsheviks. You know, my ancestors fled before that, like 10 years before that. There were these waves of, of pogroms against Jewish people, just massacring Jews in, 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 in the late 1800s, early 20th century. This is way before the Holocaust. Jews were being exterminated by, by, by vicious mobs of, of Poles or Ukrainians um, for, for religious reasons. And, and I'm, I'm no like historical expert, but, but my take on it is this part of the world, Poland, Ukraine, this, this, this part of kind of Eastern Europe, Central Asia falls between empires. They're not strongly in one world or another. They've been occupied by the Austrians. They've been occupied by the Germans. They've been occupied by the Russians. And so you have this history of bloodshed and conflict and turmoil and mixed identities because of all these different influences. And then this was stoked by Putin. He was working on this for years, trying to play Ukrainians off each other. You're more Russian. Those other guys are nationalists. Those other guys are Nazis. What happened in World War II, you know, there's a whole battle of like, was it a Russian victory or, or not? Um, and so that's what we're left with. We're, we're still, I mean, so many people in this part of the world, and Franklin will tell you this, and, and his brother who's written his, you know, beautiful novels about it will tell you, they're still thinking about World War II. So... <laughs> Just to answer your question, so I'm not totally dodging it, as far as weapons of mass destruction, nobody knows. But I've, I've talked to military experts who say Putin is way more rational than we think. Why would he use nuclear weapons? We have nuclear weapons, too. If he uses them, you know, we can use them and he'll be exterminated and eliminated. So why would he do that? NATO has tons of nuclear weapons. And, you know, so what's he going to gain by that? And I also just want to caution anybody listening. We're getting a very one sided picture of this conflict because we're not really getting a lot out of russia we don't have good sources they've kicked out our journalists it's very difficult to work from russia it's very easy to work in ukraine there are hundreds of journalists here the ukrainians talk to us they take us out to the front lines they show us their war 
we hear these, you know, these, these, this analysis from the U.S. government, from the British government about what Putin is doing, their military capabilities or how weak the Russian forces are. And I just caution people to look at the sources of information. The U.S. is not a neutral player. Britain is not a neutral player in this conflict. And they're giving us <clears throat> this analysis of who's winning or who's losing. And I would just, you know, insist and encourage people to just think about where the information is coming from and how does that factor into giving you a good picture of what's yes. really happening. So then these reports of some domestic resistance to Putin, that uh, he's lost or is losing support there, that a draft there would risk losing even more support. Those kinds of things we should all take with a grain of salt, that we should all have some caution around. Because we also have listeners who are asking, Annie, for example, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exposed Putin as the small, scared man hiding behind the curtain, manipulating the all-powerful Wizard of Oz. This war is about the international struggle between authoritarian rule and oppression and democratic governance and freedom. Biden is managing and supporting the struggle with the wisdom we need. My support for the Ukrainians has only grown over the last seven months. This is a struggle we must support through the end. And another listener writes, Do ha we have heard about Ukrainians who want Russians to take the country. Has that changed since the war started? Are Ukrainians starting to turn on Russia? And, and so just really quickly back to you, Jeff, are you seeing that Ukrainians who may have been sympathetic to Russia before turning on Russia now? There's definitely some of that because of the massacres and the, and the atrocities against civilians. There were Ukrainians that were more favorable towards Russia, has seen how the Russian troops have behaved in Ukraine, and now think I would never support Russia. That's totally true. And what Franklin said about Ukraine kind of overlooking its linguistic divides, its geographical divides coming together as one society, that's totally true. But there's also Ukrainians that feel very identified with Russia. That, that, that's also true. And just, just one point. There, there, were, there were experts and foreign policy gurus that said 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's a bad idea to expand NATO to Russia's borders. That will be threatening. Nicholas Burns, the head of the CIA today, has said or said in 2008 that there was a real strategic risk by pushing NATO too far towards Russia. It was provocative. So... There's just a real sort of geostrategic question of how do you handle, again, goes back to what I was saying about these areas that are sort of falling in between empires, these borderlands. Who's in charge? What does that mean? And how does that threaten one empire like Russia? We'll have more with Jeff Gettleman and Frank Fuller after the break. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest events in Ukraine, where things are going with Frank Forrest, a staff writer with The Atlantic. Frank's latest piece on Ukraine profiles a Ukrainian journalist, Sergei Lyshenko, called The Man Who Chased History. Jeffrey Gettleman is a global international correspondent with The New York Times. He's been on the ground in Ukraine since the war began. He's the recipient of the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting. You, our listeners, are joining us with your questions about the war on Ukraine, whether your support for Ukraine has changed in the last seven months. How would you like to see the U.S. respond to the conflict? And, of course, we are hearing from people if they have family or friends in Ukraine. How are you coping with the conflict. You can call us 866-733-6786. Finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram will be at KQED Forum. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Luke in San Jose. Hi, Luke. Yes, I was just going to ask uh, why Russia seemed to be uh, so ineffectual in the propaganda side of things. Have they just not focused on the English-speaking world, or, or what's going on with that? Mm. Frank, do you want to Share your insights on that. There's just been this incredible um, crackdown on any dissent against the war in Russia. But as Luke is saying, hasn't really seemed to be able to make its case either. I don't know. Russia, if we go back to the 2016 election and um, articles in The New York Times this week about the ways in which Russians tried to um, uh, tried to infiltrate uh, the, the women's march here and tried to stoke divisions between different sects. I think Russia has uh, has an information warfare game that was relatively sophisticated a couple of years ago, but hasn't really been updated. And part of part of the problem, I think, is that so much of Russian propaganda is based on fundamental inauthenticity. And so whether it's what they did on social media, which was about creating trolls and, um, and and fake personalities, or if it's about the kind of state-directed propaganda that goes through Russia to RT and through other official outlets, which is also um, inauthentic because it's controlled by the state, they've really just been played because they're up against an actor in Ukraine, which... Um, I mean, for starters, you have uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, who has this uh, this real skill as an entertainer and as a communicator. Um, but I think what the Ukrainians have done very successfully is um, uh, find ways to communicate that are uh, much more authentic. And it, at the end of the day, I think Putin was sitting in in his in 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 his dacha or in Kremlin. Um, very isolated and the image that he projected and the fact that um, he he didn't do the same sort of kind of, he kept everything so close hold until the, the, if he, uh, he, the, the troops started to roll across the border into Ukraine. I don't know if there was the planning that they might've done otherwise for an information warfare. I think that the Russian expectation of a lightning quick victory meant that they didn't necessarily do that sort of that sort of hard work. But I think what's clear is that in this information warfare space, um, the Ukrainians have have obviously tapped into something that is just far, far more potent than anything Russia can offer. Mm. Well, Mike writes, my grandparents left Ukraine several years before the Holodomor since they died before I was born and my Ukrainian father died when I was young. 
I feel a deep connection to the Ukrainian struggle. I'll never stop supporting their right to independence for so many reasons. They're fighting courageously on behalf of the free and democratic world. <clears throat> Jeff Gettleman, Frank was mentioning Zelensky and his power to basically <clears throat> get hearts and minds, which is also very crucial at this stage. I believe he gave an address last night where he talked very much about the importance of that and the importance of the pace of stabilizing liberated areas and restoring normal life for people in the liberated territories, which leads me to ask, can they hold these areas? Um, what do you think? I think they can, but I think we have to have a, like a bigger picture of Ukraine. Um, almost 10 million people, a fourth of the population has left the country, has become refugees in, in Europe mostly. Um, so many people are displaced within the country. I did a story uh, yesterday in the New York Times about a shortage of glass uh, windows being broken. There's been millions of windows across this country that have, have been shattered by bombs because if the glass is always the first to go. So if a bomb falls in a village, even if it doesn't hit your house, if it's you know close enough, the, the shock waves and the reverberations will shatter glass you know, in a wide radius. And, and so now winter is coming. It dropped from like 80 degrees to almost freezing uh, a week ago. And there are these people living in these bombed out buildings or bombed out houses with no glass uh, covering their windows, cold air coming in, um, you know, no plywood, nothing to cover their, these gaps in their walls. And something as simple as a glass window has become a huge problem uh, in Ukraine. So I think we're just beginning to see the pain and the suffering from all this war. Um, obviously, there's the casualties on the battlefield. There's the civilian atrocities. There's the human rights abuses. There's the war crimes. But for millions of Ukrainians, it's just hard getting through the day. Where I am in, uh, in Mykolaiv, I'm in a, in a city in southern Ukraine, they have the, the tap, the, the water system for a city of several hundred thousand people has been destroyed. So they've hooked up the tap water to a nearby river that's somewhat salty. And, and the water comes out looking like apple juice. And it's got this salty taste. And you take a shower in it and it's hard, hard rinsing the soap off and you can't drink it. And, and this is just like a relatively small thing. Um, but it's affecting hundreds of thousands of people. So we just are beginning to come to the grips, come to grips, enormous uh, fallout from this conflict that's going to go on for years and years and affect millions of people. Yes. Well, could you say a little bit more about the humanitarian situation in the bombed out areas? If there are still people there, I know that they've largely been deserted. But I'm also curious about Ukrainians who have had to flee to other parts of Ukraine, to other parts of Europe and how they're being received and treated. So this is like a huge subject, and I feel like I've been talking too much. But I'll, I'll just say something really quick, which is most of the people that fled were women and children because there's a national rule in Ukraine that no men between 18 and 50 or maybe even at 60 are allowed to leave the country. Mm -hmm. So anybody of potential fighting age, a male, is not allowed to leave. So when you had these huge refugee flows, it was mostly women and children or older, older people. Right. And one result of that is you have these families who have been separated. And you had these like really sad moments at the border where the whole family would go to the border together and the father would hug his kids goodbye and they would pass through and he'd say goodbye to his wife and 
they would exchange last words and then he'd turn around and go back to Ukraine and the family would proceed through the, through the gates into Poland or Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic or Hungary or these other places. So it's just been really sad. I mean, just the emotional toll of this. And, and as far as the humanitarian situation, you have millions of people here living in homes that have been partially destroyed or totally destroyed without electricity, without any heating, without any running water. And they're just, I mean, it all kind of combines with what, Franklin was saying there's the, the leadership of this country has been so good mobilizing the people here that that you don't hear many complaints. Like I'm complaining about the salty, weird water in, uh, in Mikulayev, but a lot of people here are just like that's, you know, we're fighting a war. We just got to get on with it. And that's what you hear all across this country. And, and Frank, you followed this Ukrainian journalist, uh, Sergei Lyshenko, if I'm saying his name yes, yes, correctly, yes. But who I think also kind of gets at what we've sort of called the zeitgeist of Ukraine, but, but what based on following him, have you learned about what is driving what Jeffrey Gettleman is talking about? If you think what he's talking about is accurate with, with regard to the way people in Ukraine are, are viewing this and handling this war. So I first met uh, Lyshenko uh, in 2014 after the revolution that uh, ousted the Russian backed president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych and Lyshenko was one of the great investigative journalists. He was very young at that moment. He had exposed so much of the corruption of the old regime. And then he uh, set out to go from being a critic to being an actual participant who wasn't just going to complain about uh, what was happening in Ukraine, but he was going to try to rebuild a new country. And so he ran for parliament in 2014 and then um, uh, became part of uh, Zelensky's inner circle. Um, uh, I should mention that along the way, one of the other reasons that I got to know him well was that he was um, he he'd exposed a lot of the crimes of uh, Paul Manafort, brought them to the public's attention right. uh, in the middle of the 2016 election. So he helped me a lot with my investigative journalism along the way, and I'd always stayed in touch with him. And he was part of Zelensky's inner circle. Uh, Giuliani <laughs> went on television and denounced him and essentially prevented him from getting a job early in the Zelensky administration. So he just kind of hung around. But at the beginning of the war, um, he was on the, the board of the Ukrainian railroads and so hopped on a train that traveled around the center of the country, helping to uh, manage these mass evacuations that Jeffrey was describing, um, uh, 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 they were they were having to reroute trains because tracks were being blown up in order to prevent the Russians from pouring in along rail lines. Um, and then in the first week of the war, he ended up uh, getting called in to live in uh, Zelensky's bunker and help with some of the information warfare that we've been discussing. But the long of the short of it is, is that um, he lives in Kiev and Kiev is a city that despite the fact that air raid sirens will still go off there, is a, is a relatively safe place where it's possible to get sushi and dine in French restaurants and you see people out and about. And while it may not be as populated as it once was, you can see uh, a lot of traces of, of normalcy in the city. And so Lyshenko's big fear is that, um, that he personally and that um, Ukrainian society in the big cities in the West will start to feel somehow disconnected from this national struggle. And so 
he keeps refreshing his kind of sense of participation by going to the front to deliver arms. Um, he collects uh, fragments of um, of rockets that have fallen, and he's kind of desperate not to lose this sense of being intimately and spiritually connected um, to that moment that he felt early in the war where Kiev was under assault and did feel like it was part of this uh, national struggle for existence. And I think his, his fear ultimately is, is, is a real one that the, the type of bonds that we've been describing will start to fray eventually. There are so many Ukrainian men who are not uh, serving in the war, who haven't been conscripted, who are living in the country, essentially jobless right now, digging deep into their savings. And some of them will, will decide to uh, enlist ultimately because it's a good paycheck. Um, but, uh, it's, it's basically a situation that over the long run is, is, is just not sustainable. Wow. Well, Franklin for Jeffrey Gettleman, thank you for giving us these nuances and also from our listeners about how this war is being felt in Ukraine here in the U S and among our listenership. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to some more calls. Michael and Santa Cruz join us. Hi, Michael. Hello. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Go ahead. Yes, I recently returned from Poland, and uh, the news given uh, in Poland is um, a little different than the one that we, we can hear in the U.S. Uh, Polish citizens have taken millions of Ukrainian refugees into their homes, and they were promised that they will be supported by the government with financial um, um, repayment, and that never happened. Um, Ukrainian citizens have been given, um, have been upgraded in Poland to similar benefits that Poles have with health care and education and uh, monthly financial uh, benefits. And, and what I'm hearing is many of them are, do go, are, are going back to Ukraine where they resume their lives, having those Polish benefits, and they take them with them. Um, so there is always different side of the story. Um, recently, Poland have, um, um, have pleaded with European countries to increase their benefits for the refugees and the war effort. And it seems like Poland is taking on um, unprecedented uh, financial and economic um, burden. Mm. Also, um, what hasn't been really said, and it's became kind of a taboo subject recently, is that, yes, the Ukraine area of Europe has gone back between Poland and the Russians and the Vikings and the Tatars and the Turks. So, so they never created own country. And always there have been someone after their lands, um, but there was um, in 1943. I think, yeah. Well, I, I think you're you're getting at a lot of of the nuances that emerge as something goes on, and and people are starting to wonder about it. And I appreciate also uh, the insight or your what you are observing in Poland, Jeff. Getem, I do just want to get your reaction though to what Michael is yeah, saying. No, no, I'd, yeah, I'd love I'd love to jump in. 
Michael, you're totally right. There's definitely some exploitation and there's corruption and there is, uh, you know, high expectation, high expectations that were not uh, fulfilled. You know, there were guarantees given to these Polish families that took in uh, Ukrainian refugees. But the bigger picture, Michael, is one of like a lot of support across Europe for Ukrainian refugees. And yeah, there might be some complaints here and there and some mismanagement, but overall, it's been stunning how many European families in Poland and other in, in Moldova and Hungary and other border, even going into Germany, have taken in strangers. And I did a piece in the New York Times comparing the reception that Ukrainian refugees received in Poland compared to African refugees, because there are African and Middle East refugees that come from Belarus and other parts of the world through Poland, hoping to get asylum in Europe. And they get the door slammed in their face. And we know that from the way, you know, in Calais, France, and these other places where there was, you know, large groups of, of migrants were treated. They were treated really badly. Yes. And the Ukrainians who have come into Europe have been treated really well yes. overall. And that is pretty stunning, but it also may reveal some racism, some Eurocentricity, you know, some comfort that we have helping these people that look like us. Uh, and we don't have that same comfort in helping others who might have a different religion or different heritage or different skin color. There's a lot of really tough issues that have come up by this. So, you know, I just want to make the bigger point, though, that Europe has really accepted and gone out of its way with both government policies and individual families times millions helping out the Ukrainians. So yeah, then, can I pipe in here? Frank, um, or yes, yeah, we so just have is, 30 seconds. Okay. Well, I was going to say one of the extraordinary things is uh, our train stations in Poland where uh, their, their maps, their aides who tried to help, uh, who direct resettled uh, uh, Poles. And that when you get off the train from uh, Ukraine, uh, you're greeted at the platform with just this outpouring. I mean, I, I, I didn't take the sandwich, even though I was hungry, but I was just amazed by the hospitality that the Poles have yes. extended. Let me ask you, Frank, just before we go, you say that Lushenko is worried that we're going to lose sight of the bigger national picture or the bigger thing that's happening here. What is that in 10 seconds? I mean, it's the struggle for national existence and this sense, I think, among Ukrainians that if they they can't abandon any of their countrymen, their compatriots to the Russians, because we've seen in the suburbs of Kiev and now in these liberated sections of Ukraine, what Russia does to Ukrainians. It's it's pretty close to genocidal. Frank Ford, Jeffrey Gettleman, thank you both for your reporting. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.